Cody, we are live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm here with my partner my uh, in law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? Looking forward to this. We got an old-time bomb squad technician, uh, Don Sadawi. That's your name, right? Sadawi, is that the yes. correct? Yes, yes. Oh, I, I, I actually jumped the Mark's supposed to introduce you. Sorry, Mark. That's fine. It's fine. Um, listen, <laughs> it's rare that, you know, a lot of cops write books, but it's rare that uh, uh, somebody goes after a cop to write a book. And the book, Rendered Safe, chronicalizes um, the remarkable career of our guest tonight. He's a retired NYPD bomb squad detective, uh, Donald Sadowy. Yes. What's up? How are you? Good, good, good. Glad good to, to have be you. here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Where are you? Um, I'm in my residence. I'm in the dining room. As you See, can. he's smart. He wouldn't tell you. He's like he's like uh, Joe Pistone. He won't tell well, you, you where he lives. You don't have to give me your address. <laughs> what, what state are you in? Um, the state of grace. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm in... Uh, he's not giving I'm, up nothing. I'm, I'm out in East Northport, the north shore of Suffolk. Okay, you're, you're in Long Island. I could, was see, I, could, I could see New Haven from the edge of my property here. All right, good. Yeah, yeah. How, how about Russia? Can you see Russia? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, Don, since you got became uh, sort of uh, famous for uh, the 1993 bombing, I just want to play a short video of that incident, and uh, we'll all we'll all take a look at it, um, and you can comment on it. We're seeing the bomb location right now. The devastation to the under, under garage under the World Trade Center. Bring back, go ahead, Mark. Sorry. Just to refresh our memories, uh, for specifically a younger audience, we had two bombings at the World Trade Center. One was in 1993. The footage that we just saw was from that. Um, in that instance, you were responsible for apprehending the co you know the the people that were responsible for that bombing. Tell us a little bit about that day and and how all this came to be. I, I was I was pulling up old cases in the basement and my my partner Steve Burbridge came down to get me from the office and um, Lieutenant Walter Boza, our CO, he went with uh, another detective uh, down to the Trade Center. Now initially at that moment in time, initially it sounded like some kind of industrial accident which happens periodically, as we all know, in New York City. And um, they went down there. And after he was down there for a while, uh, the lieutenant called the office 
and told Steve Burbridge to, to get me and make notifications to the wheel uh, to bring people in, you know, all hands on deck. Because they didn't, they didn't initially know what the cause was. We went down there, you know, the firemen and, and, and the EMTs, you know, did the rescue work. But when we went down, we, we saw that um, opening to the street. When you walk down that ramp, about maybe 50 feet, and you turn left where you would have went down another ramp, it was gone. If you can hold that photo for a second, and you see on the vertical supports, there's these uh, gray circular things. That was yeah. 18 to 24 inches of reinforced cement with rebar. The floors were gone, okay? The, the, to try to give you an idea of the magnitude of this thing, if you can picture on the B2 level where, where the bomb went off in the van, it took out an area of the size approximately of a football field. And then it took out the lower levels below it. The ramps were gone. The stairwells were gone. The floors were gone. It was just, it was just an incredible sight. Um, when you looked off to the edges of things, of the crater, um, the thing that impressed me about the damage, the, 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 the severity of it. Now, we, we, we responded to devices that were in cars that killed people, um, you know, uh, mafia hits and, and, and things of that nature. So we're looking at total devastation here. Usually when a bomb goes off, there's a thing called the seat of the explosion. There was no seat. There was no floor. The floors were gone. And it went down about five levels. And the cars were basically um, crushed, burnt, and twisted. Um, you couldn't tell the difference between a Chevy, a Ford, a Jaguar, a BMW. I mean, they were only, the vehicles were only about a foot and a half to two feet high. The front ends, as you know, are most of them are like a plastic rubbery substance. They were, that was gone with the blast. Um, but it was this crushing blast pressure wave that, I mean, literally crushed and burnt cars. And um, it, it was, it was overwhelming to take in, you know, knowing you know, uh, the background of us in a bomb squad. With, with Don, a, Don, let me just stop you there. Let me stop you there for a second. Yes, so lo looking at this devastation, yeah. there was no doubt in your mind as you went down into the garage that this was a bomb. But not, 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 not at first. Not at first. But I mean, upon seeing the devastation and seeing that a floor below uh, was just as devastated as the floor that the device went off on, didn't at that point you know it was, that it was a bomb? It was in my mind. You know, one of the things we in the bomb squad had to be very careful about because people are all around you. You start to open your mouth and give your opinion on something. It's going to show up on the front page of the news, the post, Newsday. You know, I, I, I was trained to go and follow physical evidence. Now, my gut feeling told me it was a bomb, as the other bomb technicians who were with me, Steve Burbridge, Lieutenant Walter Boza, and the, the other members that responded down there. What, what happened uh, actually into the next day? Because if you saw the footage, it was total chaos. It was not an organized uh, response as, as, as say, 9-11 uh, was. You know, they, they, there were lessons learned from 1993. The next day, um, they had the building engineers. These guys have been there for like 35 years. And they came with blueprints, and they laid it out on top of a radio car. And, of course, the area is cordoned off, so, you know, there's no newspaper people or civilians around. It's just us. 
And I remember Lieutenant Boza saying to them, show me what could have caused something here. And they, they laid everything out and they said, there's nothing here that could have caused an industrial accident. Because remember, there's been industrial accidents in New York City over the, over the decades that, I mean, it looked like a bomb went off. Okay. So, you know, nobody wants to say something without having some proof. And then we started to put it together that, you know what, if there was nothing here that could have caused this as an industrial accident, it had to be a bomb, a very, very, very big bomb. And that's, and, and, and to go down there, um, well, let me back up for a second. The day that it happened, February 26th, it happened at 12.18 p.m., the beginning of lunchtime. Cold, cold, cold February day. People, people had uh, started to go to lunch, and there's a hotel. I can't remember the name of hotel, but it's a big, famous hotel uh, that's connected between the towers, you know, at the plaza. And the um, the um, the ballroom, the grand ballroom, was set up for a catered event for like 12.30, 1 o'clock for a sports awards luncheon for a bunch of kids from a nearby school with their coaches, their teachers, their parents. And there was probably like a 25-foot hole through the floor that shot straight up through the roof of the hotel, mm -hmm. right through the, the, the plaza. Remember the plaza that you could walk on in a nice yes. weather? Uh -huh. It shot right through there, you know, the pinnacle of the explosion. And what was very sobering was to walk through that ballroom and see these chairs scattered about. And the floor actually, uh, you're familiar with the term pedaling. You know, like when somebody shoots a bullet through a, through a car door, the metal uh -huh. pedals out. Right. Well, it, it was a gigantic effect like that, that the floor pedaled up where the, the blast pressure went through the floor and through the roof, through the plaza. And it was very, very sobering. And um, down on a B2 level uh, where the, the, the people were killed in the engineering room, um, there was huge devastation. And, and I want to tell you this little story because it's, it's like when these huge things happen, it's unusual who and what survives. So uh, there was this guy that uh, he, he worked with the engineers and he worked in like the engineering refrigeration section, you know, for the Port Authority down there. And they were all coming to lunch that day that they all brought something like uh, ethnic food that they were going to share with each other and uh, at lunchtime. So um, uh, Monica Smith, she was eight months pregnant. And the other people that were there uh, all brought food in. And this one short, heavyset fellow, uh, Leo, Leo DeLeo. Uh, really great guy, uh, short, stocky, and, and built like a bull. Uh, he felt awkward. So uh, he had told me later uh, at, uh, when we debriefed him that uh, he felt awkward. But Monica said, listen, just come and join us. We'll all share food. So he felt awkward. So he went to go get two slices of pizza and a paper sack and a, and a can of soda. And he's walking through the corridor to come back to go into the office. And he said he was walking quickly and he's taking a full 36 inch step. And as he was in mid stride walking, the blast happened. It pulverized like 18 inches of cement. It, 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 it killed the people in there for, with the blast pressure. But what happened with Leo Boy, let me tell you, God was looking out for him, had an angel on his shoulder that day. As he was walking on his right side, parallel to a huge vertical support I-beam, the blast happens. And in his description of it later on, it actually lifted him off the ground, turned him upside down. He's still holding the paper sack and, and the soda in the bag. And he's upside down, traveling through the air with the blast pressure going around him, but it's causing a suction, and it's pulling him down the corridor. It went through a wall, 
the next area that it went through was another wall, but they had those big uh, gray metal, uh, like uh, military uh, desks, you know, the old gray desks, metal desks. One was flying through the air. And I'm telling you, you know, I'm, I'm not a holy roller, but I believe in God. This desk came up behind him and pinned him upside down to a wall. It didn't kill him, but it really rattled his cage and really banged him up. So the next day, we're down there, and now Port Authority's down there. Now they're trying to get a, a, a some sense of a crime scene. You know, you have the other agencies that are, that are starting to come in, and um, we're trying to get a coordinated effort. And, of course, this is like the biggest crime scene anybody's, I think, faced in normal times. And um, we hear somebody yelling. And he's really agitated. And the Port Authority cops thought he was a psycho. And it's Leo DeLeo. And he's he's yelling that he wants to talk to us. And um, one of the guys on our team, Pete Dalton, Detective Dalton from the bomb squad, he's saying, hey, bring this guy over here. Why is he so distressed that he, he's yelling and wants to talk to us? He comes over. He tells us what happened to him. Unbelievable story. And he could barely hear because, like, it really blew out his, his, his hearing. And he said, we said you should go to the hospital, you know. And he said, he said listen, I need to be here. These were my friends that were, that, that were killed, that were murdered, and I want to help. And, you know, we just kind of parachuted in. I was never on a B2 level. I don't know what was in, in or wasn't in the engineering room or the plumber's room next door. I didn't even know there was a plumber's room. The devastation just blew, blew the heck out of everything. So he was extremely helpful because he walked over... People who by now would be scared. If there's somebody trapped out there, what must they be going through right now? Panic, um, a feeling of um, total isolation, uh, the, the forgottenness. The world has just forgotten them and they're all on their own. All afternoon, they've climbed the stairs going floor to floor. Early on, it was a slow process trying to get thousands of people out from smoke and darkness. We will go every floor right. floor by floor you have a methodical type of you know uh, search and you make certain that you cover every area and every elevator has to be open we have to be certain that there's no one in those elevators the rescue effort was more grisly and difficult down below near the epicenter of the violent blast that's where firefighters saw people dead trapped in their cars and where they found themselves having to rescue one of their own we were searching for people, and all of a sudden the floor wasn't there. It fell into a hole, about 60 feet. He's got two broken legs, and all is going to be all right. Fire. Yeah, it's 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 amazing stories of 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 heroism and and people extending themselves, people who got hurt, people who were rescued. Um, what comes to mind, I almost forgot, was that night. Of February 26, 1993, at about 9 p.m., uh, rescuers were doing a second search, vertical search, you know, for anybody left behind, you know, handicapped people. They didn't want to use the elevators initially because they didn't know if the building was damaged structurally or not. They didn't have their engineers there, you know, so like, but they did put the lights on. They had the lights on. So, you know, back in the day, and they still do it now, you have, um, I don't know if they call them fire marshals or, or whatever, on each floor of a big building, there's one person that's like the go-to person. If there's a fire, they make sure everybody gets evacuated, nobody's left behind, that kind of thing. And they found, somebody found, you know, and, and now remember, we're talking about in the heat of the moment back then, that evening, and there was rumors that a bomb had gone off, okay, very big bomb. Rescuers and, and people who were doing a secondary vertical search floor by floor on the 86th floor found a bunch of very, very heavy, heavily taped boxes 
with wires sticking out and was shunted, which is unusual. I didn't know. Yeah, I never heard that. Well, I'm giving I'm giving you as it happened, and um, we were on standby down 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 below on the street with Lieutenant Walter Boza. He heard it come over citywide, and he got on the air. Uh, you know, we were on citywide three. And uh, he talks to the citywide dispatcher and says, is aviation up tonight? And they said, yeah. And he asked for one of the large, uh, larger helicopters uh, if they could come in and land. Uh, there was a big empty lot back then right off of Vesey Street, right by the water. And said that he was going to send a bomb squad team there and uh, asked to have them picked up and airlifted to the roof. And they would work their way down to the 86th floor. <laughs> I was I, I was with my partner Steve Burbridge, and um, we grabbed. We drove over there. Lieutenant went with us, and he briefed us. Don, what is what does shunted mean? Someone from our live chat wants um, to know that. Okay, it's it's like you have two insulated wires, and they're open, and the insulation's off, and you twist them together. Okay. That's. Uh, I'm sorry. I should have clarified that. That's that's called shunting a wire. And most you know most of the people in our live chat have years and years of bomb squad training. <laughs> no, I know that. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My my apologies. Just you know, I, I I I start to uh, to remember. just refresh our memories. Like you said, it was on the 86th floor. We're talking about the twin towers, and they. What was the top floor on the twin towers? 110 floors. It's now 9:30 at night. We're on board a helicopter, me, my partner, Steve Burbridge, two officers from ESU. We got a bomb suit, x-ray equipment, developing equipment, 45-pound military toolkit, and we're on board, and we're, we're up. We're airborne. Uh, we, and, and, and I will tell you, even though it's an open, open uh, cockpit, it's very disorientating to be in an aircraft moving around at night, changing directions. So we take off and, and, and as you know, um, with aircraft, you want to fly into the wind and they start heading north up the Hudson, Hudson River. We're gaining altitude a lot. And then he, he, he banks, banks to the right and we're still climbing. And now remember, this is February, very windy, uh, super cold. And um, we we get up we get up to the edge of the roof at the North Tower. Now, what always stuck in my mind the difference between the North Tower and the South Tower. North Tower has that big antenna and all these small antennas around it. We're in the large helicopter. The pilot brings us up to the northwest corner of the edge of the roof. He cannot land because of the props and the antennas. So he hovers. Now we've we've trained with ESU and and wait, wait wait don't tell me you got you got to jump out of the the helicopter and and onto the roof. Yes, sir. <laughs> no way. Hundred ten stories. Now we've done this in training many times up at camp. What training did you go to? I never went to that training. Uh, we used to call it as a joke, kill the tomato school. But uh, once a year, uh, you'd have ESU, TARU, uh, bomb squad, uh, uh, counter sniper team, hostage team, all go up to Camp Smith for a week. And uh, uh, the instructors would role play taking hostages and you know we would have to try to get them without them being killed. Uh, very challenging situation. But anyway, uh, we, 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 we've done this before. I did this in the Marine Corps. I, I repelled that of helicopters, you know, so like this wasn't something brand new to me. Hoorah. I didn't know you were a Marine, Don. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, sir. So anyway, here we go. It's at night. It's 930. We're up there and we get up right up to the edge of the roof. And as there's, there's a couple of guys down on the roof, uh, ESU officers, you know, that literally walked up and were waiting for us. And we were hovering, but the wind is, is, is pulling us tremendously. Once we got just a, a little bit above the roof, the winds were unbelievably strong in February. And this is at night. And um, I, I had my fat butt sitting with, with the, uh, the hatch locked open. 
balls of my feet were on the skid. I got a 60, 68 pound bomb suit strapped to my shoulders. So I'm top heavy and I'm ready to, to go out the door. Now, the way that this works is that you can't hear nothing. Okay. You have the pilot, co-pilot and the crew chief the, and the crew chief. He's got his headsets on talking with the pilot, waiting to say when it's okay to go. And uh, I'm waiting for, for two taps on my shoulder. And that means go, just go. And also that upsets the balance of the helicopter too, because you got to balance weight and he's dealing with the wind and the whole thing shifting around. And at one point, the wind pulled us back. I'm looking straight down at 110 stories. And I want to tell you, scared? I was truly, truly scared. Believe what, me. Hey, Don, what if a guy was fooling around and said, no? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would be. A splat. <laughs> so what happened? What happened was my partner and the two guys from ESU and the crew chief all grabbed a piece of me wherever they could and, and were yanking me back. And I'm like Humpty Dumpty. Remember, I got my butt cheeks right on the, the edge of the deck with the hatch locked open, my balls of my feet on the skid, and, and they're trying to pull me back in, and I'm top-heavy. So I'm, I'm like rolling, and the crew chief is screaming into his, uh, his head mic to the pilot and co-pilot, and the co-pilot turns his head and sees what's going on, and the pilot takes the helicopter and uh, immediately banks hard to one side and then drops in altitude to roll my fat butt back in. The crew chief is still screaming, trying to unlock and slide the door because now he's working against the, um, what would you call, you know, uh, um, the positioning of the aircraft and uh, finally gets it closed. We're like, we're like 200 feet above the street. And now he opens up the throttles and we're heading toward um, the Statue of Liberty. And I remember... See, seeing the face of the Statue of Liberty with the arm up, and we're like, we're heading right toward that, and then he goes up, he banks a turn again, and he says that we're coming around for a second for a second pass, and I want to tell you, my heart is beating like a drum. My partner and the guys from ESU were saying, Donnie, you okay? You okay? And um, uh, it was scary. So now we're Don, Don, just hold that thought. We got to go to a quick commercial. Okay. Hey, what's up, guys and gals? Listen, we are sponsored by the best hot sauce in the world, Silk City Hot Sauce. Um, it's made from locally grown ingredients. Uh, the peppers, uh, what, whatever they're doing with it, they're, they're firing it up, and it's great. And I have it every single day on my, uh, on my avocado toast, on my egg whites. And it really sparks up the meal. If you're on a diet, you're trying to lose weight, but you still want to have something uh, taste that tastes good, go to SilkCityHotSauce.com. You put in the coupon code OTC for off the cuff, and you'll get a 15% discount. All the bottles are like five bucks a piece. You get four bottles. Trust me, uh, there's all different flavors. You're going to love it from mild to wild. You'll love it. Do me a favor. Go check out SilkCityHotSauce.com. Folks, are you tired of the high taxes in New York? These politicians that don't seem to be on the same page as us. Carol Waters, who used to be a bartender at the Fitzpatrick Hotel for 20 years, now sells real estate down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And Carol's husband, Rob Mayen, was a former NYPD officer who rolled over to the fire department. Now they make a dynamic duo of a sales team down in Myrtle Beach. So if you're looking to move down south or even a vacation home, give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681, or you can email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. You getting into a little trouble? You yeah. maybe, you, maybe you need an attorney? Well, Joe Murray is a former member of the service who now has his own law firm. Joe's a hell of an attorney. He's a huge supporter of police off the cuff, and he, he is – He's one of the best guys you'll ever want to meet. If you want to get a hold of Joe, just it's he has a website, Joe at jmurray-law.com. And uh, as I said, he's a hell of a guy. Folks, we're supporting Elizabeth Crotty from Manhattan District Attorney. She is a Democrat, but she's a middle of the road, leaning to the right uh, Democrat, and she's pro-police and is one of those people that's 100% against that whole defund movement. So 
if you live in Manhattan, please vote for Elizabeth Crotty and get out and vote anyway, you know, because it's important to vote and it's important to, uh, to you know, get someone good inside there. I just want to mention something. Uh, Bill Ryan told me today is the fourth anniversary of the passing of a legendary detective first grade, Tom Nerney, also a U.S. Marine. And uh, Tom Nerney was a hell of a guy. If you read about his police career, it was nothing short of unbelievable. And he, he gave back near the end of his career. He taught at CIC. He always worked on police homicides. And it's hard to believe that Tom's been uh, been gone for four years. But we salute. Uh, and, Don, why don't you do it? And even though I wasn't a Marine, I want to give him the Marine shout-out. Hoorah! <laughs> Carry on. That's right. Hey, um, let me ask you. So uh, wh whatever was going on, uh, with this bombing was, but you guys caught these guys. Well, was, it, that's, that's the the most remarkable thing is the way that you, you caught them and the fact that you were responsible for that. So take us back downstairs and take us through how you actually caught these guys that, that, you know, drove those vans in there, set them up there and blew them up. From the day that it happened, probably more so the day after, um, there was a handful of us that took it upon ourselves. We talked with, uh, you know, our, our, our lieutenant, Lieutenant Walter Bozer, um, that we wanted to go down and we wanted to take a look. Now, at, at, at everything, as much as we could. Now, what you're seeing here is you're seeing halogen lights that were set up with generators that ran from outside with cables coming down. Let me tell you, for the first couple of days, it was a dark, dark hole. All you had, you were in boots, jumpsuit, work gloves, helmet, and uh, you took a police radio with you and uh, a portal light. And uh, I had a tool belt that uh, I, I had some tools attached to. And there was one person that was still missing, Mr. Mercado. Mr. Mercado worked in the food service uh, department for Windows on the World. Now, he had an office on the B2 level. And, of course, that was gone. And there was also a big refrigerator there that had, you know, steaks and meats and ribs and things like that. He would get a call. He would put stuff on a cart. And he would bring it all the way up on the service elevator, you know, to the restaurant and then come back down. That was his job. And um, he was known to, uh, during his lunch break, he'd just sit in a chair there in his little office and take a snooze. You know, he, he brought in like a bag lunch, you know, every day. So he was still missing. We were, we were thinking maybe there's some small chance Mr. Mercado's still alive. Maybe he's buried. Maybe he can't talk. But maybe he's still alive. So uh, myself, Detective Steve Dodge, uh, Detective Pete Dalton, um, a couple of FBI agents who were good guys that we worked with, uh, Don Haldeman and uh, Steve Vieira, we all went down and we all went in different directions. And we went crawling down into different places and I had a, uh, on my tool belt, I had a, an old K-bar knife. And the back of it is, is flat like a hammer and it's metal. And when I would get into certain areas, I would call out Mr. Mercado's name loudly several times. And I would bang on a piece of metal and then listen intently. And we were all doing this, you know, about, about five of us total, but in all different directions and levels. When you went down there initially, there was no lights. There were no generators on. It was super cold. It was like a wind tunnel. Remember, this is this is February, and that that part of the city, you know, the wind is just blowing like crazy. Um, one of the problems we had was that there was a um, water flowing down. It took a couple of days before somebody contacted somebody to shut the water off. You know, that, that, that was a freshwater line that supplied the entire building. Now, besides that breaking, you had the waste lines from all the toilets. This was all going down 
into bottom portions of, of the crater. And it was really difficult to see, to get around. It was very dangerous. Remember, there were the ramps were gone. The stairwells were gone. The floors were gone. If, if, if you climbed, if you made any attempt to go down below, you really had to look around and to be so careful because it can cause an avalanche of debris and, and you, you'd be finished. You guys caught this, uh, the guys that were responsible for doing this bombing based off of a VIN number. Yes. Man, where, yeah. where did you find that? What? what I'll, I'll get right to the point. On, on, on Sunday, the FBI showed up with their, their bosses from D.C. and the ATF National Response Team and, and us. And uh, we met, we were like three football teams running into each other. Finally, somebody said, listen, why don't we all meet in the grand ballroom at a hotel, which we did. And again, to walk in there is a very sobering thing to see trophies thrown around the floor, uh, peddled, you know, uh, the blast pressure would have killed everybody in there without a doubt. All these children. And so you basically went upstairs to have a meeting. Yes. So then from there, um, the FBI boss said, why don't we just have an exploratory team take uh, uh, people from the different agencies who have different expertise to go down there and just take a look. Um, sketch artist, photographer, somebody from uh, our forensics lab uh, takes take swab samples, um, you know, take a good look around. So they said... What that, day was this? This was... After the Sunday. bombing, this was Sunday. After how many days after the bombing? I think I think it happened on a Friday, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, it was a Friday. So this was the third day into the it. Sunday. You finally decide let's let's all meet together and exchange information. Well, well, the bosses, the bosses did this, and I'm standing there, and uh, you stand in the room, and and you know, uh, in a big circle, and you know, you give your name, rank, and what your expertise is. So the uh, Steve Vieira and Don Haldeman said, listen. We need to set up a command post to get everybody coordinated with, with the Port Authority because we're all running in circles separately. Why don't we do that? And listen, Sadawi seems to know how to get up and down there. He's been up and down there many times, you know, searching, searching for any survivors. And he knows how to get down there. So they asked me, would I take a joint team? And I said that I would, but I said, it's pretty dangerous. I said, you guys work in the lab. I said, this is, this is no walk in the park. But there, I will tell you from that point forward, there was this sense of patriotism that is so hard to put into words that we were attacked. Our nation was attacked. This was, this was our Pearl Harbor. This is what we felt like. And we needed to, to, to pull together and, and do whatever is necessary to find out who did this to us. So basically what you're saying is at this point, you knew it was a bombing. Yes. So okay. now I take a team down there. Um, I said that I knew an area that I thought would be pristine. It's, it's up on what's left of a ledge on a B2 level on the other side of the crater. Nobody's been to it. The firemen haven't hit it with any water because there was no fire right there. You know, there were fires, but they were down below and on the other side. So I felt for forensics purposes that this would be the best place to start. So we go down there and, um, you know, again, we, we, we have portal lights and, and the, this is all we have for light. And uh, it's cold. The wind is blowing through. And I bring them over there. And there's this car that's crushed and burnt really bad. You, you, you couldn't even at, at first glance figure out what make and model that this, this car was. That's how most of them were. So they're working on that, each of them doing their forensics thing from ATF, the FBI, NYPD, crime lab, uh, crime scene. And uh, I'm with this guy, Joe Hanlon. Now, Joe... And Joe had a lot of experience. He was he was a retired sergeant major from the U.S. Army, and he was in Army EOD. Now he had wonderful knowledge about explosives and military ordnance, but he's not a, he's not a forensics guy, you know. And that's not to take anything away from, him, but just he didn't have you know. In the Army, they find an IED and they countercharge it and they salute and they they march on, okay. Um, so um, I go with Joe Hanlon, and we're going out on this piece of broken slab about 35 feet long. 
it's it's on an angle down and it's being held on with rebar and it is dark and there's burnt pieces and now i'm finding pieces of crushed vehicle now i've seen bombs in cars before but i've never seen a car blown apart now i'm not talking about the superficial stuff i'm talking about the 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 uh the powertrain the engine the transmission the the axles and so forth the uh, the, the frame of the vehicle and i said what you're saying is that usually a, a, like a mob hit on a bomb in a car yeah that the top part would blow up but yeah. not the, the car the the chassis and all the other stuff would still be there were you saying the whole freaking thing oh yeah it's 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 like it's like the whole vehicle imploded out and I said, I've never seen anything like this before. So Joe went with me, Joe Hanlon from ATF, and uh, he, he wasn't an agent. He was a, uh, they gave him a, a position as an explosives expert. But he, I don't think he's ever worked uh, a crime scene. Uh, none of us ever worked anything like this before. But I, I see my background too is I went to Brooklyn Automotive uh, Vocational High School. I knew car parts, okay? So I see a differential that's, that's the gears in the rear of the vehicle underneath where the, cha uh, the chassis is, where the axles go together and, and the gears turn and make the wheels turn. I'm seeing pieces of that, and I sat down at, like a puzzle, and I put it back together. And then I looked at if, if it was upright, you know, 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock, as it should be in a the vehicle, there was tremendous pressure that broke this thing open like an egg. Wow. And then I found the pinion gear and the piece that holds it together. It's an inch and a half of cold rolled steel. Okay. Don, Don, let me just, uh, uh, this is all fascinating, but we got to move faster. Cause oh, okay. we want, we okay. want to get to the well, investigation. We moved, we moved, we moved <clears throat> down, we moved down um, the ramp in the darkness and I found this piece of metal twisted, charred, twisted like a piece of licorice. It's a chassis frame. And I said to Joe, this is really significant. And my old partner, Larry Riccio, he, he told me about confidential VIN numbers. So I took my glove off and Joe held the light. And I put my thumb inside because it's shaped like a, like a the letter C. So you can't see it. You got to feel for it. And I felt an encoded number, star shape, three letters, and about a dozen numbers and then star shape. And most metal is either pressed in or raised with numbers. This was neither. It was like little dots encrypted into it. I felt that and I knew, I knew that that was a, a confidential VIN number. And now I'm going strictly by my gut and my hunch. And I said, this had to be the vehicle that carried the bomb. Because the, of that twisted steel. Because the way it twisted. Well, also, the, the, pressure. the, thing, the thing that led me to it was the fact that the, the the chassis was blown apart and the whole powertrain was thrown all over the place. All the other cars were intact. They were crushed. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. That's this amazing. Is, this is fragmented. This is the structural parts of yeah. the powertrain. Well, They're all over the place. So I said, I said, you know, listen, we gotta we gotta bring this back to the team. And if you read that portion in the book before this. Uh, I got told in no uncertain terms by the FBI boss, you don't move anything and you don't take anything out of there. Well, I made the decision. We're taking it out. Now, right at that time, I'm telling you, you can't make this stuff up. Right at that time, the FBI female dispatcher gets on the air because I was a team leader for them, said, listen, you got 15 minutes to get out of there because the, the uh, Port Authority says that the uh, MTA trains are pulling back from the tunnel and there could be a big collapse of the debris right where you guys are. I'm like, holy crap. So I, I made the decision I said uh, because everybody's saying to me, listen, we were told we can't move anything. I said, listen to me, I don't want to have time to explain. This is too important to leave here. It's too important. It could fall down there and we'll never find it. I says, I think this is the VIN number to the van. Don, who was who was the lead agency at this? The FBI. They was. So they, they were in charge, but they don't always make the right decisions. Well, yeah, uh, but let me tell you what, what your brain did by noticing that all the other cars 
that were there were still intact, except for yours, the one that you were looking at and the way it broke apart? Yeah. I now, mean, I've listen, been, we only have, we, Don, we only have about 10 minutes, so we got to get okay. to okay, what so the, the VIN number we, led to what? We get, we, get, we get a Stokes basket. We put a body bag around it. They're thinking that it's Mr. Mercado. We bring it up topside, and there's all the media up there. And I said to the cops and the uniform bosses, I need your help, guys. I need you to lock down uh, 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 the West Side Highway. It's a Sunday afternoon. Nothing's going on. But they cannot be allowed to follow this crime scene vehicle to the lab. It's too important. So they locked it down. People were cursing at us. And off, off the vehicle went with an ATF, FBI, and an NYPD detective in it with crime scene with the Stokes basket and the body bag with the parts in it. Took it to our lab. All all the media people went to the to the ME's office, and later that night, it was two detectives uh, from from our uh, lab that put it in a vice, locked themselves in a room, used two twenty four inch pipe wrenches, bent it back, and hit it with an acid wash, and then the numbers came up. From there, they they put it through uh, NCIC. It came up that it was rented down south. And it, and it was brought up to New Jersey, and that's that's uh, where Muhammad Salome uh, rented the vehicle. Now, what 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 you 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 probably don't know is that everybody said it was like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And I was like, listen, they came here and they built a bomb and they tried to take the building down. I said the reason Muhammad Salome went back, okay, he went back. Because he knew he 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 couldn't go back to the to the to the two mosques or the safe houses, he went to the uh, truck rental place to get his uh, two hundred dollars back because he <laughs> needed it for an upgrade on a ticket so he could fly out of Newark International, go to Antwerp, Belgium, where somebody was waiting for him with a phony passport and another uh, uh, ticket to fly down into the lower valley of Egypt and lay low. That's so what telling me was. that he was two hundred dollars shy. Like he didn't even have two hundred dollars to get the, his his ticket. Well, let me let me explain what that is. Really up front. Let me explain what that is. That's that's because this whole network of terrorists they ordered the cheapest ticket you can order from overseas to uh, contact Newark to to get him the cheapest ticket. The cheapest cheapest ticket from Newark to uh, to uh, Antwerp, Belgium was for a child's ticket. He didn't know that. So he needed $200 more. That's why he went back. And then when when he went back, uh, we there was a team there, you know, uh, 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 you know, getting him on film. Is this you? Did you rent it? Blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, they were gonna they were gonna do surveillance on him to see if he hooked up with the other guys immediately. And you had eyewitness news with their mini cam with their uh, antenna up, going live from the parking lot. Well, the Joint Terrorist Task Force has one of the terrorists right now. He's about to be apprehended. He wasn't going to be locked up. They were going to follow him, but that's what broke the case. And uh, oh course, my god, the, the actual cool. bomb maker was Ramsey Yosef. He left the country, and two and a half years later, um, our State Department people got him in, um, I'm trying to think of, Pakistan, okay? There was a fire in the building, and he was making bombs upstairs, and he had his computer there with all his contacts, and uh, he wasn't home at the time. So it was a freak fire, and the firemen saw all this bomb-making stuff and computers. They called the police, and then they called their intelligence people, and then they called our embassy, and then uh, people uh, from from an agency with three letters, they went over there, and they snatched his ass up, and uh, the Pakistani intelligence interrogated him, and he was actually glad to be turned over to the State Department because they, uh, they really roughed him up. And then they put him on a plane, flew him back, and I'm friends with one of the agents who flew him back. And as they came into New York, they flew around the Trade Center and they took the blindfold off in, in the cabin and opened a little shade and s flew low and slow around it. And they said, look, it's still standing, Ramsey. And he smiled. This is, this is according to my friend. Smiled and said, if I had more time and more money, I would have brought them down. So these are very unrepentant uh, individuals.
So that's 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 how we solved that case. You know what's funny is that oh, I, and by I, the way, I was threatened because I took that I I made the as team leader, I got the the guys and the gals behind me to take that piece out and smuggle it out. I was threatened by the FBI boss. He was screaming at me so much I couldn't get a word in, and basically said I was going to be thrown off the task force. I was going to be sent back to my command, and there was going to be a nasty letter written to the chief of detectives about me. So it was going to be like, return to command, no meal. (laughs) That's right. That's right. This is the NYPD for you. While you're in there and you're, um, you know, figuring out, you're finding VIN numbers to cars that blew up the trade center. I was a rookie. I had just come out of the police academy. And um, I think it was the Tuesday after the bombing. My, we got all sent down there, you know, like a, like a detail. So we were supposed to go. It was in February, like you said, and it was cold. Cold, super cold. And, and we're all, you know, all these rookies are standing there and we're going to get assigned foot posts just to, like, be outside omnipresence while you guys do your investigation. Yeah. And while we're all mustered up there, uh, whoever was in charge of us, you know, the, the sergeant, whatever, giving out posts, he says, um, uh, I'm going to need a volunteer. And like the one thing that you learn as soon as you get in the, in the police academy is never volunteer for anything. See, but the thing is, I'm 25 years old right now. I was like one of the, you know, I was older in the academy. Yeah, you're you know? the old man in the class. Well, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm also from New York. I'm street smart. I'm like, how bad could this be, this, this assignment? They're going to send us out here to work in, in the freezing cold. Um, you know, how bad could they want? So I, I raised my hand and I took it and you know what it was? There was a car that had a flat tire and they needed somebody to bring the car to the tire shop and, uh, get the, the, the tire fixed and then bring it back. If I tell you it took me eight hours, you know the traffic in New York City? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, all these other <laughs> knuckleheads were out there. Like you, you're doing your investigation. We're all rookies. Yeah, I wanted to get that tire fixed. That was my day when I was down there right after that. I, I think everybody will, whether you would or not, you'll remember where you were like the day Kennedy was shot. You know, everybody remembers where they were. We worked after that. We worked like coal miners, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, no days off for a couple of months. And we, we were able to recover just about all of the vehicle and all of the evidence that we needed. Uh, to put together to make an ironclad case, and uh, uh, it was it was not it, it wasn't just me. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I used some of my skill from high school, uh, and I was in the right place at the right, right time. But it was a, it was a team it was a team effort. It really was. We were I'm telling you, we worked seven days a week, twelve hours a day. We used to go up into the where they had that corridor where they used to have like uh, shops and stuff. And we would go up there on our break and I would lay on a floor like a skull to just, just get an hour's sleep. And they bring, they bring around central booking sandwiches, you know, uh, stale bread with bologna on it and, and a can of warm soda and a bag of chips. And, and you'd sit on the floor like, like, like a skull and, and you'd eat, you'd eat that. And wherever I could, you know, we're working long shifts, no days off. I would just lay, that wasn't just me. It was a lot of other guys. You just put your head down. We're working like coal miners, you know, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just very proud of the whole team and everybody who was there because, uh, I mean, there was a dedication, I'm telling you, that I've never seen or experienced since. But of, you, also, uh, did, did, you also worked uh, the, the 9-11, didn't you? I was I was actually at 9/11 and I responded. I was actually a uh, corporate security supervisor at the Merrill Lynch World Headquarters, right across the street from uh, uh, the North Tower. And I, I immediately went across there and I ran into an FBI agent and a couple of other agents that remembered me. And they thought I was still on a job. You know, I'm in a I'm in a shirt and tie and a suit and everything. And they're thinking, I'm, hey, Don, good thing you're here. You know, and we got into a huddle, uh, went upstairs to like the 20th floor, helped out, came back down. And uh, then we realized there was the jumpers that were coming out. And, and one thing I want to tell you that you won't hear anyplace else is that the building engineers and the elevator mechanics. They said to their bosses in the lobby of the North Tower when it was time to leave, when they thought everybody was out, 
they were told to get their tool bags and their men and leave. And they and, and this is the words that always stayed in my memory. They said, this is our house. They didn't say it's our building. They said, this is our house. We left nobody, none of our people behind in 1993, and we are not going to leave anybody behind today. And they were told three times to leave, and they got into a huddle, and they all smiled at us. They picked up their rigging and their tool bags, and their boss said, listen, boss, we'll call you when we get up there because we know there's people trapped up there, and there's places only a cat could get through, and we know how to get up there. And we're going to go up there, and we're going to get our people out. They right, listen, up, and, um, and that was the last thing I ever saw of them. Rendered safe. If you want to hear more of these stories, uh, which are remarkable, by the way, I can't. I'm, I'm, my mind is blown right now. Uh, rendered safe is the name of the book. Um, before we uh, close out, we have to uh, acknowledge all the people that came in uh, the chat, and uh, some people made a. Uh, you know, uh, a little contributions to us through Super Chad. We want to acknowledge them. So just give us a second to do that. Sure. Uh, Gayla Dennison, uh, she bought your book. So you sold at least one book during this. She bought uh, Rendered Safe. So, uh, oh, thank you. Thank so, you. So hope, you hope, hope you enjoy it. Yeah, it should be pretty good. Listen, folks, Police Off the Cuff, we got a new website. It's basically just policeoffthecuff.com. We're very proud of it. Josh, our, uh, Webmaster is doing a fabulous job doing it, and he's really helping us out a lot. We're trying to pick this um, podcast up into the next level, and we can only do that with your help. I feel like I have to just, for one one more last time, for old time's sake, I got to read about our fourth anniversary of the passing of Detective First Grade Tom Nerney, U.S. Marine Corps. He's a, he's an icon in this job, and I had to uh, I have to mention that one more time, and just. One also one more time. I have to. Uh, this is such an important election. I just want to mention um, uh, District Attorney Elizabeth Crotty. Uh, she's running for Manhattan District Attorney. She's a friend of the police. She happens to be a Democrat, but she's a hundred percent behind the police, which you can't say about any of the other candidates. If you live in Manhattan, please get out and vote and vote for uh, Elizabeth Crotty for District Attorney. You've seen some of the mayoral candidates. So hopefully we can get someone in there good who's the district attorney um, and vote for Elizabeth Crotty. Don, you were fantastic. You know, I, that's why I, I didn't mean to push you along, but an hour is not enough to tell this story. And we didn't even really get into the investigation with Ramsey Youssef, the blind sheik, all that other stuff. That could be for another time. There's, yeah, there's, definitely. There's, I would love to hear the rest of this. That there's a lot of lot of stories in the book. I worked with Jeff Engber. I had the stories. He's a professional writer. Um, yeah, you picked a nice picture. I'll tell you. I, I I I said to him from the beginning, I've read other books that other members of the service wrote, and I don't want to make myself out to be anything other than what I am. I says I'm not making myself out to be, you know, I got the most medals or I'm some kind of hero or something. I says I'm going to put it out there, warts and all. Good stories, funny stories. Uh, I'm very honest in some of my chapters. I talk, I talk where I sat down and I cried my eyes out. Uh, I held nothing back about doing this book. And one of the things I just want to say is I was very proud that we got a lot of men and women that I was so proud to, to work with over the years to get their contributions to the book. It was a collaboration. It wasn't just me. Yeah, it's me on the timeline, but so many other wonderful stories of other, other people that, uh, that participated in these things. The last thing I'll say is I had somebody say to me one day, you know, come on, Don, didn't you make some of these stories up? And Jeff Ingber said to me, the writer, he says, Don, I never doubted that you were telling me the truth, but I had to hear these stories also from other people who were there. And that's what he did. He interviewed people who were with me for all of these situations. So it's not that, you know, cloud over my head that people saying, oh, that's that's too fantastic. You know, you must have made stuff up. It's not. It's all true. And and again, you know, it's it's it was a collaboration. It wasn't just me. Well, that's fantastic. Steve Cologne, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. Duty Ron, as always. And even MC's Audio, thank you for reaching into your piggy bank. I know you don't have a lot of money. Thank you for the 499 chat. We yeah. appreciate all you guys. And look, these are some of the people that we bring on the shows, some of the best.
that the NYPD has to offer, some of the best heroes. We even have uh, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo in the chat from Harlem Raiders fame, and uh, he's even shouting out to Tom Nerdy, also, rep, rep, you know, rest in peace. Boxing MMA, these, you know, these people we have on the show, it, they, you, you have these great stories memorialized by the people who were involved in them, and uh, that's what Police Off the Cuff is all about. Any final words, Mark? All I want to say is I'm stunned. I'm still, like, my brain is still rattling. The fact that you would, you know, the way that you came up with this, uh, the way that your brain works and you were able to put this investigation together, the fact that none of the other, all the other color, uh, cars might have been squashed, but they weren't blown up like this one, that that was just remarkable. That That's amazing. That's what detective work is. That's why uh, we are the NYPD. God bless you. Thank you for your uh, service and all. The, that it was just remarkable. I'm if 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 you ever get a chance, read read toward the end of my book. I was buried alive, left for dead, found by accident on 9/11, and I'm just you know I Don. That's, that that's, how you, that's how you got the nickname, the Human Q-tip, Don Sadawi. That's what Bill Ryan <laughs> told me to mention. That he said mention. He's the his nickname's the Human Q-tip. So worked a lot of cases. <laughs> worked a lot of cases with him in A and E. He's a great guy, and God bless him. And uh, listen, fellas, thank you so much from bottom of my heart for. No, uh, you're for always welcome back. We, we probably we want to have you back because we want. I want to hear more. I want to hear the second half of this. Like Bill said, there's a lot more that has to be said about this. The investigation, the blind sheik, all that stuff is really fascinating stuff. I want well, to learn. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to come back. Just just tell me when. You right. got it, Don. Andy Crayons, thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. For all you Police Off the Cuff fans, thank you guys so much for your support. On behalf of Bill Cannon, Mark DeMeo, and uh, Don Sadawi, good night, everyone. Good night.